Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're only going to look at a couple of verses this morning, and then we're going to look at a whole bunch more, um, and then we'll circle it back around to uh, these last to these, these two verses again at the end. Um, if we have time, let's see, last service I went a little long, but Saturday night I went even longer, so you guys should be in good shape. All right. I uh, had the opportunity on um, New Year's Eve, uh, Thursday night here, uh, we, we did youth group. Um, we didn't do a New Year's party uh, because I didn't want to clean up the mess. So we just had regular New Year's, sent everyone home, and then and the students, they threw confetti in their own living rooms, right? Um, so we, we had youth group, but we, we had a really great time of just reflecting on the year and considering the moment uh, that, that God had put us in at, at that time on that night, and also looking forward a little bit. And, and um, I remember preparing for that, and even that night, as, as we kind of looked back on the year that had been, um, you know, I, I recognized that there were some really high highs in 2020. I mean, there were some incredible blessings, some really, really amazing stuff happened, at least in my life and in the lives of many people I know. And there were some really great things that happened. But then I also, you have to recognize that there were some really, really low things that happened, some really bummer things, some bad, some deep, deep valleys. There were high highs and there were low lows. And I couldn't help but think that night as I stood there and as we reflected and as we talked about this, I couldn't help but think, man, what a roller coaster that had been. And then I took that idea and I, and I, tried, to, I tried to look forward into this year. And you know what I thought to myself? Wouldn't it be nice not to be on the roller coaster anymore? Wouldn't it be nice to have my feet on solid ground again? Wouldn't it be great if my emotions weren't dictated by whatever was happening, good or bad? What if my attitude wasn't affected by the headlines? What if, what if you know, my, my, um, my, my, uh, the, the way that I relate to other people, what if that wasn't affected by the, you know, the drama that comes through on my, my phone, messages and emails and all of that? What if this year, if I could have any kind of resolution going forward for this year, what if I was firm? What if I stood still? What if I, what if I got off the roller coaster and I wasn't going to ride whatever the world was going to throw at me? And so this is the idea uh, that I continued to pray through and, and study through um, to share with all of you this morning. We're only going to look at verses 57 and 58. So if you are able, would you please stand with me? As we read these two verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57 says, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, open our ears, open our eyes, Father. Most importantly, open our hearts to receive what you'd have for us this morning. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Contrary to what the sign says, you may be seated. Relax. Standing. Standing. So, verse 57 and 58. Uh, to plug this into context here, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's writing this letter to the church in Corinth. And, and he just got finished talking about how there's no more sting in death because the sting of death was sin and we've been forgiven. And, and, and Jesus, he did away with sin. And so now we have victory. And so that's why in verse 57, he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 58, he says, therefore, that means because we have victory in Jesus, because we have victory in Jesus, my beloved brethren, we ought to be steadfast. Steadfast means sitting still. It's when you set something down, it doesn't move steadfast. And it says that we should be immovable. That means anchored down. It's not just that we're in one place, but, but it's that our, our, our feet are anchored into the ground. We cannot be moved. No matter how much uh, someone would try to move you, no matter how much uh, the world would try to throw you off balance, you cannot be moved. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I'll tell you what, I don't know about you guys, but I have noticed in my life that there are times where I am, I am busy with the Lord's work. I'm doing what I feel like he's called me to do. I'm taking every opportunity to serve others and serve the Lord. And then my phone rings and some kind of drama happens. Some kind of message comes through or some kind of headline pops up or something happens. And the next thing you know, I neglect the opportunity to serve the Lord. And instead, now I'm busy wrapped up in, in whatever drama's on my cell phone, whatever drama I'm seeing on television or on the computer, or whatever kind of, you know, conversation I'm in, engaged in. I've neglected what I was doing so that I can, so that I can, instead I'm focusing now on, on all of this other stuff, on reacting to all this other stuff. You know, I'm, I'm called to, to love others and be loving and, and be encouraging to other people. But that morning, man, if I've seen a, a news headline, I might, that might just put me in a bad mood all day. And the next thing you know, I'm, I'm not super anxious to meet with people. I'm not super excited about talking to others. I go out into public and I'm, I'm not a very warm and engaging person. No, I'm in, a, I'm in kind of a crummy mood. And, and what happens is I've allowed the circumstances of life in this world to throw me off to distract me from what God would have me to do. Whether it's being a good husband, being a good father, whether it's being a, a good pastor or being, being a loving Christian toward others, whether it's sharing the gospel with strangers, whether it's encouraging someone or praying for someone, instead of taking every opportunity to do those things, I'm so distracted by all the stuff that's coming across my phone or my television. 
I'm so swayed away from ministry by conversation, by, by trading rants with people. Paul says here, instead, be steadfast. Don't be moved away. Instead, abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And really, that's kind of, that's kind of important for us to key in on because, because if I'm busy serving the Lord over here, and I feel like God's using me and I feel like I see fruit and things are happening. But then I look at this headline and I think, well, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. What good does it make to make a difference? What does it matter if I pray? What does it matter if we do this or that anymore? Or man, I've spent so much time pouring into this person, pouring into this person and giving them biblical advice and trying to share wisdom. And they went and just did that thing anyways. And what good does it do now? Because now, that, now there's someone else who wants my time. And what does it matter? They're not going to listen to me anyways. You see, it can happen that way where we, we try, we spend some time uh, serving, pouring out, ministering, whether it's to your family, whether it's, you know, some kind of ministry here at church or, or whatever it is. And, and then we get so easily discouraged because, because of something that comes across our phone or a news headline or some kind of, you know, negative interaction that we have with someone. And then that just completely distracts us from what we're supposed to be doing in the first place. And he says, no, your labor is not in vain. It might feel like you're not making any progress there, but remember, whose, whose job is it to give the increase? Whose job is it to give the increase? This is a, it's from a conversation that he has here with the Corinthians earlier. He says, you know, some of you say, oh, I'm of Apollos. And some of you say, oh, I'm of Paul or I'm of Jesus. And Paul just says, hey, you know, some plant, some water, but it's God who gives the increase. So, Christian, you and I, we ought to be faithful to continue to plant, to continue to water, trust God for the increase, even if the circumstances of life and the things going on in the world around us don't look very promising. You know, it's like, it's like planting, you know, seeds out in the ground, but it's, just, it's a cloudy day. Well, it's a cloudy day, so that means the seeds aren't going to grow. Well, maybe not today, but have you considered tomorrow? You know, have you considered that, that the gloom that's hanging over us today might just be blown away and that the sun is still standing in the sky? Have you considered those kinds of things? So he says, of course, in all the things, the circumstances of life and the world around us, rather than riding that roller coaster, rather than going up and going down, and rather than allowing our attitudes, rather than allowing our emotions, rather than allowing our relationships, and rather than allowing our ministry to be subject to or to be reactive to all of the good and the bad, we ought to be steadfast, stable, sturdy, standing. This is a theme that Paul, through the Holy Spirit, um, it, it, he keys in on this uh, multiple times here. Scan down or, or look down or turn the page over to the end of, uh, of chapter 16. Look what he says there in verse 13. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, he says, Watch, stand fast in the faith. 
Be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Very similar to the verses we saw at the end of chapter 15, right? You know, when something is repeated, you probably should pay attention, right? It's like, you know, trying to tell my kids, trying to give them a, a list of things to do. Oh, goodness. <laughs> well, I want to make sure I'm going to repeat this, repeat this, repeat this, because if I don't, you know, then something's going to go. There, there's something is, is important here for us to notice. We ought to be firm, steadfast, immovable, standing fast in faith. It requires bravery. It requires strength. And we ought to continue to serve the Lord and do so through love. Regardless of what's happening in the headlines, what's coming across your telephone, what you see on the news, what's going on in the world, regardless of what someone said to you in the grocery store because you were or weren't wearing a mask. We should be immovable, firm, sturdy, and planted. Now, something I learned when I was very young was that I have the most success standing when I do so on two legs. I think I learned that when I was, I don't know, 16, 18 months old, something like that, however it was. I don't remember, actually, but I know that it's worked for me for this long Standing on two legs. So there's two legs I want to consider, two legs I want to talk about here as we get into this idea of, of what it means to stand and to stand, to stand strong and to be, be firm and steadfast and immovable. The first leg, the first idea I want to look at is standing in confidence. Standing in confidence. Now this is a... This is an often misunderstood idea, especially in Christian circles, because we often equate or relate confidence to pride, right? We've, if you've ever watched any sports, you've seen this play out, and, and that's the reason sometimes that you root for or against certain athletes or certain teams is because, boy, look how cocky those people are. Look how overconfident, look how prideful that team is. I'm going to root for these other guys then instead. That's, we do that quite frequently. There's this idea that our confidence is linked to pride, that confidence is a bad thing. Confidence, we can derive a certain amount of confidence from our pride, which pride is ultimately sin, understand. And so if your confidence is based upon your pride or your belief in yourself, and the goodness of the, your own works and, and your own strength and your own abilities, understand that confidence will always fail. It will always fail. Eventually, you're going to fail. Because that confidence is based on, it's rooted in sin. But there is a confidence that we as Christians are called to have that does not fail. There is a confidence that we can trust in that can help give us the strength to stand. Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. This is the beginning of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And so it's his big welcome. It's his big, uh, you know, hello uh, to this church that he cares so dearly about. 
He says, starting in verse 3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Here is Paul who has this confidence. He's exercising this confidence that God's going to continue to do amazing things in and through the church in Philippi. Where does that confidence come from? Because the truth is, if Paul is basing it only on his experience that he had in Philippi, he has just as much reason to believe that nothing good's going to come from that church. You see, Paul didn't have a great time in Philippi. Paul's experience in Philippi was much more like a roller coaster. There were some high highs and there were some low lows. He goes to Philippi. He doesn't even know who he's supposed to meet. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know where he's going. He's not sure why he's there except to preach the gospel, but he's looking for someone to do that with. He eventually goes down to the river because that's where the Jews were gathering. So he goes down to the riverside and here's this gal and she's a Jew and he begins to share with her the, the truth that Jesus Christ is Messiah that they've been looking for, waiting for. And she receives it. And it turns out this gal, Lydia, it turns out she is a very prominent person in Philippi. It turns out she's very well to do. And she has a, a nice house and she has lots of provision. And so here's Paul with literally nothing, no place to sleep, nothing to eat, nowhere to go, not knowing exactly who he should be connecting with. He shares the gospel with Lydia and suddenly now he's got a mansion with which to hold his base out of as he goes preaching the gospel and he gets fed and clothed very well. Now, what a great experience. The first person he shares the gospel with, boom, it turns out to be someone who can really help him in his ministry. That's a great thing. But you know, the problem is that at Philippi, they didn't, they didn't throw a, uh, a, a parade for him when he got there. Like, oh, great Christian missionary, thank you for coming to share with us. We will automatically believe and receive everything that you have to say. No, that didn't happen. Instead of throwing a parade, they rioted. And Paul would be arrested. And he would be beaten. And he would be whipped. And he would be thrown into jail. And he would be chained to the wall, to the floor. And the iron doors would slam shut on him. And he would be cold, hungry, in the dark, hurting, bruised, and bleeding. He and Silas, his, his partner there, But even in the midst of that, that deep, dark valley, that really low, low there in, in that prison, I don't know about you guys, but I look at 2020 and I think, when I think of the low lows that I had, you know, like what was my deepest, darkest part of 2020? It certainly didn't involve me being assaulted. It certainly didn't involve me being beat to within inches of my life. It certainly didn't involve me having, you know, chains strapped around my wrists and around my legs. I mean, he had it low. 
And yet even in the midst of that, he would experience something incredible. They're chained to the wall. They're singing praises. That's all they can do. They're singing praises, and suddenly the earth begins to shake. Now, this prison is either down in a hole or it's a stone building. I don't know, but that doesn't comfort me when the ground starts shaking and I realize that I could be crushed (laughs) by something. I mean, that's, that's a scary thing. The ground starts shaking. There's fear spread throughout the jail, but the chains fall off of their arms and the doors swing open in the prison. And freedom is yours if you just want to run through those doors. But they choose to stay. They choose to stay. Paul, Silas, and all the other prisoners, they choose to stay. And when the jailer, the guard, when he's about to kill himself because he knows that he will be held accountable for all these prisoners escaping and his life is done anyways, and Paul yells, he says, no, 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 don't. Don't do it. Do yourself no harm. We're all here. It's okay. And that guard, that guard then goes to Paul, escorts him out of jail, takes him to his very own house, begins to treat his bloody wounds, feeds him, and then Paul gets to share the gospel with their whole house and their whole household gets saved. I mean, talk about a roller coaster, right? Ups and downs and then up again. And, and, and that was his experience in Philippi. And maybe that's been your experience in life lately. That's been my experience in life lately. How does he have confidence that God will continue to do great things? The secret is back in verse 3. Confidence, guys. Confidence comes from thankfulness. Confidence comes from thankfulness. Look at verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He thanks God every time he thinks about Philippi. And how often is that? Verse 4, always. (laughs) In every prayer of mine, making requests for you with joy. Every time he prays, He thanks God for the people and the experiences he had in Philippi. How long has he been doing that? Verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. The whole time, from the very first day that he had there in Philippi, he's been thanking God for what God has been doing in and through the people in Philippi. And that's why he has confidence that God will continue to do great things there. Confidence comes from thankfulness. Think of it like this. If you do anything for 30 days, it becomes what? A habit. That's right. Whether for good or for bad. When I was in third grade, uh, a friend of mine told me, if you crack your knuckles, they'll turn green. I said, how do you know that? My big brother told me. So guess what I've been doing for the last 30 years? Cracking my knuckles. Because green knuckles would be cool. (laughs) At least that's what I thought back then, right? I thought, oh, cool, green knuckles. So I started cracking my knuckles all. And guess what happened? It became a habit. It became such a bad habit now. My wife will tell you, I crack my knuckles in my sleep. I don't even know I'm doing it. 
I'll be sitting there at work or driving in the car or whatever. I'll be cracking my knuckles and I won't even know that I'm cracking my knuckles. It's a subconscious thing. It's a habit now. It's a bad habit. Thankfully, in doctors and chiropractors, they told me that I'm pretty safe to just keep cracking. Um, but I realize it disgusts some people. So, um, yeah, anyways. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, a habit happens when you repeat that thing over and over again. And Paul made a habit out of having a thankful heart for the experiences and the people that he had and he met here in Philippi. And what that produced was confidence that God would continue to do it. Thank you for Philippi. Thank you for the church in Philippi. Thank you for the Philippians. Thank you, God, for this. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And so now comes the question, will God do great things through Philippi? I am confident of that. He started a good work in you. He's going to complete that good work in you. Confidence comes from thankfulness. Here's the proof. Let's flip the whole thing around. Flip the whole thing around. What if your prayers do not contain thank yous? Unfortunately, that's a pretty bad habit we all have. When we pray prayers without praying thank yous to God, instead we end up sounding like, um, you know, we're at a drive-thru. Like Mick Jesus or something, right? <laughs> I want one of these. I want one of those. Um, give me that and none of this, please. Ooh. Boy, it sounds, ooh, that sounds bad. But unfortunately, that's what our prayer life can amount to at times. Because we've not taken the time to say thanks for a single thing. Instead, all we're doing is asking. We, we, we're sharing our wants. We're sharing our needs. We're sharing the things that we're perhaps coveting. And all that does, every time that we do that over and over again, remember that, that idea becomes a habit. The habit that you begin to form is that you always suffer lack. You never have enough. You never get what you want. Because over and over again, all I'm doing is I'm sharing what I want, what I need, what I lack, what I want, what I need, what I lack, what someone else has that I don't have. And I've trained myself. I have created a habitual discontentment, a habitual um, lack of confidence, a doubt that the Lord will provide. When I was just saved, just gave my life to Jesus and went right off to Bible college. And I remember sitting in Bible college and every morning we would have these devotions. The whole school would come together and we'd come into this big main sanctuary and, and they would usually let a student come and, and a, the student would share the devotion that morning, 10, 15 minutes in the word. And I remember one time the student was up there and he was sharing about, you know, how he had this need in his life and he was just going to trust the Lord with it. And the next thing you know, um, you know, he, he went out to his car and on his windshield was an envelope and it was the exact amount of money that he needed in that envelope. And I remember hearing that thinking, where's my envelope? <laughs> and man, I'm... I'm trying to pay tuition. I'm trying to pay my bills. I'm trying to, I got a truck to pay for and I got gas to pay for and insurance and, and I'm working at the same time. I'm trying to go to school here. God, where's, where's my envelope? That guy sits by the pool all day. And so after devotions, I went outside of the parking lot. I peek out there, nothing on my windshield, you know. 
A few months later, it felt like the next day, but a few months later, you know, someone else, they're up there sharing a, a very similar testimony about how they went to get the mail and, and they, there was an envelope with no return address and they opened it up and it was exactly the amount of money that they needed. So I went to check the mail after devotions and there was a bill. <laughs> Lord, this isn't funny. <laughs> All I was thinking about, all I was thinking about was what I didn't have. My, prayer, my prayers was, was like at a drive-thru. All I was doing was asking and asking and asking and sharing my discontentments and sharing what I, what I perceived to be my needs. And because of that, I had this unthankful heart. And because I, I didn't have a thankful heart, I had no confidence that God would provide. If you want confidence to stand against all of the circumstances and the things that life and this world are going to throw at you this year, you have to trust Jesus that he is going to do what he set out to do, that he'll finish the good work that he started in you. Give him thanks. Give him thanks. Make that a habit in your life. Every time you pray, find three things to be thankful for. Every time you pray. I, that, I, I tell you that because that's something that I had to do in my own life. It's a practice I had to put into play in my own life. And you know what happens? I'm looking for three things, and then four things come along, and five things come along. And pretty much, you know what happens then after 10, 15 minutes? I've forgotten what it is that I was even going to ask for. But man, I feel great because I've just taken time to recognize all of the good thing that God's doing in my life. Confidence comes from thankfulness. The second leg that we have to stand on, very closely related, the second leg is contentment. Contentment. You're already in Philippians. Turn a few pages over to chapter 4. Chapter 4 of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4 is famous for verses 6 and 7, right? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Interesting. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I mean, that's what people remember Philippians chapter 4. 4. Be anxious for nothing but pray about everything. And man, I remember that verse when my anxiousness or my anxiety is high. When my worries are worryful and, and when I'm just, I'm just a mess, that's when I turn to Philippians chapter 4. But I'm in error if I have forgotten verse 5. Verse 5 says, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Let your gentleness, you could also plug the word patience in there. Let your gentleness, let your patience be known to all men. In other words, let that be your reputation. That you and I would have a reputation for speaking gently toward other people. For being patient. Even when, verse 6 says, that we have anxiety, that we have worries, concern, when we're anxious for things, that we would still have a reputation for being gentle and patient. Because we trust that the Lord is at hand. That means that, that Jesus is there. That he's not far away. That he is there. And he's there to help. 
But how can I have gentleness? How can I have peace with so much anxiety? Go back to verse 4. Don't forget verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It comes back to that thankfulness, right? It comes back to counting those blessings, saying thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's how you rejoice in the Lord because all that thankfulness will lead to joy in your heart which will help you to have gentleness and patience even when there's anxiety in your heart because there will be. And so when people see you going through things that fill their hearts and their lives with anxiety and oh my goodness, what are they going to do? How are they going to respond? They're going to see your gentleness your patience. They're going to see your trust in Jesus. He really brings it home down in verse 11. You see, between verses 7 and 11, Paul thanks the Philippians because they sent to him a gift. Paul, as he's on the mission field, as he's traveling from city to city, he's, he's working a little bit as a tent maker but his, his main focus is sharing the gospel. And so he needs, he suffers. And, and he's writing this letter from prison. And again, they didn't provide for you in prison in those days. There was no, you know, big government prison system. No, it was, it was they throw you in a cell and you would survive if someone on the outside deemed you worthy of feeding and clothing. But if no one on the outside thought that you mattered enough to feed you or clothe you, then you would starve to death in jail and you would die. Good riddance. But if, if your life mattered enough to even one person outside that they would bring you food while you were in prison or that they would bring you clothing while you were in prison, you would survive. You'd survive your prison term, your sentence. And so Paul receives this wonderful gift from the Philippians. Probably money, probably some food, probably some clothes. He receives this wonderful gift from the Philippians. And so now he's in this kind of, it's kind of awkward situation to be in where he is very thankful for them. But, but he also doesn't want to convey the idea that, that, you know, things are so, so bad that they saved his life. And so he's trying to kind of, uh, you know, be thankful, but still encouraging to them. And so in verse 11, he says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is contentment. This is contentment. This is Paul saying, thank you so much for this wonderful, awesome gift. But please understand, if I could make this a teachable moment for you, he says, I want you to know that even when I'm starving and even when I'm hungry and even when I'm, I'm naked and destitute, Jesus is still enough for me. Jesus is still enough for me. I've learned, I have learned, I'm sorry gang, but contentment is something you must learn. There's no way to just get it. <laughs> 
Contentment requires the application of the knowledge of contentment to your situation. It requires the experience of being content in order to understand what content is. It's something you must learn. And so you're going to go through some difficult times. You're going to go through your low times. You're going to go through times where you're hungry. He says, I've learned that whatever state I am, now he's not talking about, you know, whether I'm in Idaho or California. No, but whatever position I am in in life, to, to be content. I know how to be a base. That means poorer than poor. And I know how to abound. That means richer than rich. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. To suffer need. Not just like, oh, I need some dinner, but to, to hunger so much, it hurts. He says, I've been through all of that. And you know what? His answer, his, his summary for all of that is verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The, you can also, another way you can look at that is say, I, I get strength through Christ who is my strength. Not from eating a whole bunch of great food. Not from having all the cool stuff I wanted. No, my contentment, my strength to keep going comes from Jesus Christ who strengthens me. We, unfortunately, are the, the you know, habit that we have is taking verses like Philippians 4.13, pulling it out of its context and then making believe that we can dunk the basketball or something, right? I can do all things through Christ. No. I mean, if he intended for me to dunk a basketball, he would have made me a lot taller and a lot more aerodynamic. Um, but he did not, and so... I just move the hoop lower. <laughs> when it says I can do all things through Christ, it means that no matter what situation or state I'm in, I don't depend on other things. I depend on Jesus Christ. Contentment. It goes back. It goes back to that story like I was telling you about Bible college. Because I'll tell you what, I learned, I had to learn I learned, I, I heard someone's testimony and it, it didn't happen for me. And I heard someone's testimony and it didn't happen to me. And I had to learn to become content. And you know what happened? One day it happened for me. One day there was an envelope that showed up. The exact amount, the exact day that I needed it. And you know what happened? You know, sometime after that, sometime after that, my bank account was zeroed again. Right? I've had to learn over years that this is going to happen like this sometimes and sometimes it's not going to happen. But I'm not going to allow my emotions, my attitudes, my opinions to be reactive to those situations. I'm going to stand in contentment. And so if I'm going to be able to withstand whatever it is that the world is throwing at me, whatever is in the headlines, if I'm going to stand firm, steady, strong, I have to stand in confidence, which comes from thankfulness, and I have to stand in contentment, which comes from resting in Jesus, trusting Jesus for everything. Now there's a wonderful illustration of how this plays out. If you will, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. 
This is a brief historical account in the life of Abram. Abram is Abraham, but his name's not Abraham yet. <laughs> God hasn't changed his name yet. God, his, his original name is Abram. God eventually would change his name to Abraham. It's a wonderful part of the story. I encourage you to look it up and read it. But this is early on in Abram's life. Abram is living in what we would consider Israel today, the Middle East. And the world that he's living in, the, the, the state of the climate that he's in, well, there is, uh, there's lots of international unrest. Uh, there's lots of um, political maneuvering, problems, and rebellion going on. You see, he's living in this land, but, but the land that they're living in, it's currently occupied by a, by a king with a strange name, Chedorlaomer, who happens to be the most powerful, the strongest king, the strongest army, and the strongest nation. And so he happens to have control over this whole region. A king, Abram, and none of his friends or family wanted is ruling over them. And there's so much division that some of these other kings, these governors from these other cities, decide we should rebel against that. So as you can see, Abram is living in a time of great political unrest, international problems, war going on. This is Abram's life. And so in verse 8, that's where we're going to pick it up. Verse 8 says, And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Aramphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, the king of Elisar. Four kings against five. War is happening. The king of Sodom aligns his allies against Chedorlaomer and his allies. And they go out to do battle in this valley called Siddim. And this is, this is the area, the region of the Dead Sea there. Now, verse 10 says, Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits or tar pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there and, remain, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in, Sodom's, in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. So these kings, they decide to mount a rebellion against old King Cheddar. And so they line up and they go out to battle, only they pick the worst battlefield. The the Dead Sea, there's tar pits everywhere. They can't maneuver their armies properly because when they do, they're walking through quicksand and tar pits and it just, they, get, they just get routed. And so they retreat, but, but Cheddar Leomar and his armies and the allies, they, they pursue them, they overrun their cities and then they take away plunder and spoil and they even take away the people. In fact, a guy named Lot Abram's nephew, he happens to get carried away in all of this. He gets carried away in all of the political back and forth. 
He got carried away by all of the international problems, issues. He got carried away with the wars and the rumors of wars. He got carried away with it. And so now, verse 13 says, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Someone survives, comes and tells Abram, hey, your nephew, he got carried away with this. He got taken prisoner. And it's bad, man. It's really bad. And so this now is Abram's opportunity to stand. In the middle of all of the political and civil and rebellion and, and in all of the war and all of the international stuff that's going on in his day and age, in the middle of the personal family drama that now is happening. This is opportunity for Abram to stand. And so he does. Verse 14, Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. Abram decides he's going to stand. He's not going to ride the roller coaster. He's not going to let himself be overwhelmed and become reactive. No, he's going to stand. He's going to be firm. He's going to be brave. He's going to be steadfast. And he's going to do what he knows the Lord would have him to do. And he exercises confidence. 318 farmers is what he's got. Versus the, the strongest king in the, that region of the world at that time. Talk about confidence. Where did his confidence come from? He trusted in the Lord. He knew that the Lord would deliver him. He stood confidently. And now we'll see that the other thing that helped him to stand was contentment. Listen to what happens. Verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley, after he returned from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, the kings who were with him. So here comes Abram with his army. And they're pulling carts full of all of the goods and, and they're bringing all the people back. And then here comes the king of Sodom, the guy who, who retreated, ran away when his army was routed. Here comes the king of Sodom out to meet him. But there's someone else who comes to meet him as well. Verse 18, Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. In other words, I've made an oath that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. 
except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner and Eschol and Mamre. Let them take their portion. Abram comes back with all of the treasure and all of the people. And here's the king of Sodom. And he is so thankful that he says, yes, let's take the people back to the city, but you keep all the riches and the treasure and the spoil. And Abram says, that's not what I'm in it for. That's not why I did it. I don't want it. In fact, he says, I have made an oath to the Lord. And and look at what he says in verse 22. Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. In other words, what he's saying is everything that you call mine and everything that you call yours, it actually all belongs to him. Nothing that I have is mine. Nothing that you have is yours. He says, this is the Lord's stuff. I'm not in it for the stuff. I did it because it was the right thing to do. I'm content. Abram takes the opportunity to stand in the midst of everything going on, all the craziness going on in his world at the time, in his life and in his family. He takes the opportunity to stand and he stands confidently and he stands in contentment. Now he's rewarded for this. Let's go back. Go back to verse 18. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine and he was the priest of God Most High. Scholars are divided. Some scholars look at this guy, Melchizedek, and they say, this is Jesus Christ. This is what theologians call a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus Christ in human history before his birth in Bethlehem. This is Jesus Christ manifest in the flesh who comes out and meets Abram. Now, why do they say that? Well, he's the king of Salem. Salem means peace. He's the king of peace. Salem is Jerusalem. This city Salem would become Jerusalem. Who is the king who rules from Jerusalem? He brought out bread and wine. Doesn't that sound familiar? And he was the priest of God Most High. He was a king and a priest. And we know, the Old Testament tells us, that there is only one king and priest of God the Most High. So many scholars believe this is an appearance of Jesus. Other scholars believe, at the very least, that this guy Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus, a type of Jesus, because of all of the things that we just mentioned here. You know, either way, and and I'm not going to bore you guys with going into details as much as I love to geek out on this kind of stuff. I'm not going to take you guys on my roller coaster there. Um, Either way, the application for us is very clear. When we take the opportunity to stand in spite of whatever the world has going on around us, in spite of our circumstances, in spite of our family drama, in spite of who gets carried away with this or that, 
when we take the opportunity to stand confidently in thanksgiving, and when we, and we stand in contentment, trusting Jesus, we will have an experience with Jesus on a very personal level. That's what Abram experienced here. You and I, Abraham received a blessing from Jesus. And you and I, we will be blessed by Jesus when we stand confidently, when we stand in contentment. In the middle of all of that, and when the world is trying to distract us and, and pay us off for things, that's when we have that great time with Jesus where he blesses. The reward for you and I, guys, for standing in the middle of everything going on, it's a deeper, it's a more real relationship with Jesus. It's contentment that's found in Jesus. It's confidence that comes from Jesus. Guys, from the very beginning to the very end, it's all about Jesus. This year, don't ride the roller coaster. It's going to be up and it's going to be down. Right? Nothing magical actually happened at midnight a couple days ago, right? Still the same world out there. The headlines keep rolling. You know, still, I didn't see anything different. Right? Except now I got to try and remember to write 21. The world is going to come. Life will continue to bring its ups and its downs, its highs and its lows. But you and I are called to be steadfast. We're called to be immovable, anchored down. We're called to be brave. That requires confidence in the Lord. It comes from thankfulness. And it requires contentment in the Lord. And you just have to learn that Jesus is all that you need. And you will be blessed. You will experience the blessing of Jesus Christ in your personal life, in your family, when you do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful picture, Lord. This wonderful principle that you would put into play. That we, Lord, we don't have to be... Um, dictated our feelings, our emotions, our actions, our words. We don't have to live reactive lives, Lord. But we can live confident and content lives. And we can stand and be about your business. And we can focus on the things that really matter, Lord, your work. Simply, Lord, by trusting in you and being thankful to you. So help us, Lord, to do that. And Father, now as we transition into this time of worship, Lord, and remembrance, Lord, I, I pray that, that you would help us, Lord, to use this time as a time to say thank you. That we would use this time as a time to reflect that we might learn contentment as we thank you for all of the good things and even for the hard things that have happened to us recently. Be glorified now, Lord, as we enter into this time of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.